Thank you for listening to the podcast of Antioch Church, a Christian community in Bend, Oregon, being formed by the story of a God who is making all things new, including us. You can learn more at antiochchurch.org. Thanks for listening. Uh, this is a pretty cool moment. And um, if you don't know, Antioch will turn 15 years old uh, this fall and uh, maybe explains some of the angst uh, that we're going through as a church. But um, we've been renting Sunday worship facilities for 15 years. Um, Started way back in 2006 at Father Luke's room at McMinniman's. And then uh, went to the movie theater in the Old Mill for a while. Then went to uh, Summit High School for a couple of years. Then Bend High, where we were home for about eight years until March of 2020. At which point we relocated to the internet and uh, had a few, four months there. First four months of COVID before we went to Les Schwab last summer at the amphitheater. Uh, back to the internet for about eight months, and then Drake Park uh, this summer, and now after 15 years, here we are. And um, <clears throat> if you've been around Antioch, you know that we've kind of always tried to celebrate the idea that we're a tabernacle church, um, just like the Israelites in the Old Testament. Before the temple, they had this giant tent of worship, um, a tabernacle that they would have to lug around and all that. And so many of you know what that feels like, Um, the setup and the teardown and all the stuff that uh, it took to put on worship gatherings at the various spaces we've met over the years. Um, Finally, like the Israelites were just tired of it and King Solomon builds the first temple, but it took them 440 years. So 15 years is actually pretty good um, for us to have our temple here. So, um, and just a couple words about the space real quick. Um, We're kind of considering this sort of a soft opening um, as we're trying to kind of work out some of the kinks and figure out what this space can handle and what it can hold and... um, It's actually, I was worried we were going to hear a bunch of kids doing stuff. I don't know, maybe the kids are gone, but um, (laughs) so far, pretty good. So, um, you know, we've been working hard on the interior. Your staff has been working hard this summer, preparing a place for you. And uh, a bunch of you guys have volunteered time over the last few weeks, spreading bark and trimming trees and touching up paint and assembling furniture. So thank you to all of you that have helped out in that way. Um, You'll notice we've held off on investing heavily in the exterior so far. And uh, we just decided to wait until we're settled in a little bit and figure out what we really need and and what it's going to look like long term. So uh, one day we'll make this place pretty as well. So um, I want to just acknowledge real quick this uh, beautiful moss wall behind me that uh, was created by our very own Dominique Kongsley. Uh, Is Dominique here this service? She's no longer with us. All right. Well... (laughs) No, Dom, uh, Dom's a local artist that's part of Antioch, and she created this, and I, I just think it's beautiful, and uh, if you have a moss allergy, I apologize, but <clears throat> um, it's going to take a little while for us to kind of make ourselves at home and get used to this. It's a little different than Bend High, where everybody had a, their own row to themselves, <laughs> um, so we're going to get to know each other a little bit more, and uh, I think that's a good thing. 
Um, obviously, it's also different that we are now splitting up the congregation into multiple services. And uh, it's not a rare thing to do, but it's, it's new and it's different for us. And um, so I think we can just name that that's kind of a bummer, that there's people that we used to see every week that now we're going to kind of catch each other in passing or whatever. So um, we'll just name that there's always, anytime there's change, there's loss. And anytime there's loss, there's potential for grief or for hurt. And so um, there's parts of this process that may be painful, and uh, we just want to acknowledge that. Um, so for me, I'm pretty stoked. As long as I've been a lead pastor, my Sunday morning routine has been I get up early, I drive to the office and put in some time of prayer and finishing up the sermon. And then when it, time comes, I hit print and I go and get in my truck and then drive to wherever I'm preaching. Um, so this morning I hit print and I walk downstairs and, uh, and here we are. So um, this is pretty fun. So thanks for being here today and uh, I'm excited about uh, all that God has in store for us. Um, we're going to continue through the book of Ephesians, this little series that we're in as we go through the lectionary. And uh, if you were with us last week, we said that the book of Ephesians is a letter about the church to the church. And it's one of the most significant portions of scripture that we have when it comes to conveying Christ's heart for what the church is and what the church does. And so again, in the first three chapters, Paul lays out the gospel, this good news of who God is and what he is doing in Christ to save us and to save the world. And then in chapter four, he transitions to this question of if the gospel is true, what kind of community um, does it form? And so uh, the idea is that the gospel, if it really is this good and true story, um, that it can't be contained to just the one part of our lives that we, we call religion um, or spirituality. It is a story that's going to touch everything, and it's going to change everything that it touches, every part of our lives. And so Paul spends time here talking about how the gospel of Jesus affects us when it comes to marriage and parenting and work and sex and money and relationships and that sort of thing. And so last week we looked at the metaphor of uh, church as the body of Christ that we are called to be the physical representation of Jesus uh, to the world. And then this week, Paul really just fleshes that out a little bit more for us. What does that actually look like to be, to live, and to function as members of Christ's body? And so uh, this morning, we're going to focus in just on the last couple verses of chapter 4 and the first couple verses of chapter 5. And um, we know that in the original text, there weren't any verse or chapter breaks, and so this is one of those places where the chapter break kind of lands at an awkward spot and sort of interrupts a uh, train of thought. Um, so we're just going to kind of tackle it as one chunk. And so what Paul's talking about here um, are all the diff among all the different ways that Christ's people are called to live different in the world, um, one of the most significant areas has to do with the relationship that we have, the relationships we have with one another within the church. Very specifically, the people that are part of the congregation of Christ, 
to which we belong, how do we relate to one another? How do we see one another? How do we treat one another? And for Paul, that's a very big deal when it comes to accomplishing our mission and living into our vision as the church. And so um, we're going to start kind of at the end of our text and work backwards a little, a little bit. In chapter 5, as Pat read, it says, Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So this phrase, to follow God's example, um, really would be better translated as be imitators of God. And maybe that's how your Bible says it. Um, the idea isn't that we just follow his example or that we imitate, um, but it, we are actually called to be imitators. There's a difference there. It's a statement of identity. We are to be imitators of God. Now, I don't know about you, but if that's the job description, that makes me a little nervous, right? It sounds a little bit intimidating if my job is to be an imitator of God, if not entirely impossible. And it's not just because of what we understand about who God is, that he's holy, that he's righteous, that he's pure and blameless. Um, I think we actually, if we're honest, we have specific questions about who this God is that we're called to imitate. And so um, if you think through the story of the Bible and think through some of the things that God does, what are God's verbs in the scriptures? Well, the very first thing God does is he creates the heavens and the earth, right? What else does God do? He chooses a people and he blesses them. God guides people through the wilderness um, into the promised land. Those are some of the things that God does. But God also sends horrible plagues to devastate entire communities. God also punishes sin generation after generation. God also commands the conquest and destruction of several entire nations who stood in Israel's way. So if we look at those verbs that the Old Testament uses to describe what God does, and then we take all that and go, okay, I'm supposed to be an imitator of God. Um, first problem is I can't do most of those things. And second, the ones that I can, I probably shouldn't. And so some scholars and theologians try to solve this problem by saying it's not so much about the verbs, but it's about the adjectives. Let's look at the character and nature or the attributes of God. What are the adjectives we'd use to describe God? And so one of the ways some theologians divide this up is in two columns of God's communicable and incommunicable attributes. Sounds more like STDs or something like that. But... <laughs> Communicable, meaning there are th certain things about God's character and personality that are contagious, that we can be like him in those ways. And there's other incommunicable attributes are things that are unique to God himself. So all the omnis, for example, that God is omnipresent, he's omniscient, he's omnipotent. All these kinds of things we're like, yeah, clearly that's just who God is, and we can't be like him in those ways. But these communicable attributes have to do with the fact that God is loving, that God is just, that God is faithful, that God is patient. 
And so one of the ways some people try to deal with this idea of what it means to be imitators of God is to focus in on the communicable attributes of God that are revealed in Scripture and see if we can imitate those. And I think that gets us a little bit closer but I still feel like it doesn't quite capture the weight of Paul's command here, that we are to be imitators of God. Like, Paul can't mean that we just kind of pick and choose which of God's behaviors we're going to try to copy, and he can't mean that we're supposed to, like, make columns and sort through which of God's conditions are contagious. So I actually think Paul's doing something else here. Because in this very text, Paul doesn't just leave us guessing and wondering about what he means. He doesn't just leave us speculating about which behaviors of God he's talking about or which attributes of God. Instead, very specifically, Paul points us to a person. A person who bears the image of God perfectly. So in both verse 32 of chapter 4 and verse 2 of chapter 5, he says, forgive each other just as in Christ God forgave you, and then walk in the way of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. So here's what we need to see, that whatever questions that we may be left with when it comes to God's actions, God's character, God's nature, or attributes, all of those questions are addressed and answered with clarity and finality in the person of Jesus. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He is what God is like. Jesus is the God that we are called to imitate. So it's not so much about the verbs or about the adjectives, it's about a proper noun singular, specific person, the one human who perfectly bears the image of God. And so, get what I'm saying here. It's not just that as Christians, we ought to try to be more like Christ. Obviously, that's true. But it's that if we want to know who God really is, God is like Jesus. And so as Jesus bears the image of God, so we as the church bear the image of Jesus. Which means that especially within the church, our ethic of behavior, if you follow Paul's logic here, is going to be dictated by the way God has treated us in Christ. So Paul says, because God has forgiven you in Christ, we ought to be a community marked by forgiveness. Because God has loved you in Christ, we ought to be a community marked by love. So now if we go back a couple verses, chapter 4, verse 31, he says, Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Okay, so when it comes back to the identity and the vocation of the church, Paul is specifically in this text dealing with the relationships that exist amongst us as the body of Christ. He's not talking about the way we relate to those in the world around us. That's not part of what he's talking about here. 
He's talking about the way we see each other and treat each other within the church. Now, of course, if we want to go out and extend the love and forgiveness of Christ to our non-believing neighbors, that's great. But he's saying that's not the primary thing that I'm concerned about. Because he's not writing to a bunch of random individuals saying, you go out and be Jesus to the world. He's writing to a community and saying, it starts with us learning how to live differently together. And so to some of us, that might sound really insular, really inward-facing, inward-focused, when we know that the mission of God is supposed to be active in sharing the, the, the good news and displaying the kingdom wherever we go. But here's why I believe, here's what I believe about the church according to the Bible. It's that God doesn't call the church to change the world. He calls the church to be the world changed by God. Another way of putting it is that he hasn't called us to make the world a better place. There's lots of people and lots of organizations that are trying to make the world a better place, and that's great. But that's not the mission of the church. The mission of the church has to do with the fact that God has already made a better place, and it's called the church. I got one of my favorite metaphors for the church watching a documentary about Walt Disney a few years ago. And I shared this once at the time. Um, but it's the idea that in 1966, I think, Walt Disney unveiled his vision for this brand new epic project called Epcot. And uh, he had this 30-minute TV special where he describes his plan to take out this huge plot of land near Orlando and create a brand new city from scratch. And his dream was to create this like utopian town from the future with innovative technologies and systems that could serve as an impetus for social and economic progress. So Epcot was never supposed to be a theme park. It was supposed to be an actual functioning city. And, um, and Disney was preparing to invest millions and millions in creating this futuristic utopia. And then two months after the TV special aired, Disney died. Walt Disney died, and the, the vision died with him. Um, and so I haven't been to Epcot. Um, all I know is that it kind of looks like a giant golf ball. Um, but the original picture was this, like, fully functioning futuristic city. And... If you uh, ever wondered what Epcot stands for, it's an experimental prototype community of tomorrow. That was the idea, that we are in our moment in time going to create a place where we live as citizens of the future. We're going to create an environment <clears throat> where we embody and announce to the world where things are headed. This is what the world will look like in 20, 50, 100, 1,000 years. And so the vision was that you would visit Epcot and you would get a glimpse of the future. And I'm going, I don't know that I've heard a better description of the church. That the church is called to be an experimental prototype community of tomorrow. 
The kingdom of God isn't nostalgic. It isn't backwards facing. It isn't sentimental. It isn't trying to get things back to more familiar or the, the way they used to be. The kingdom of God is pressing forward. It's alive and it's growing and it's advancing. And for us as the church, we're striving to live as a showcase to the world of the world that is to come. What things will look like when Christ brings the fullness of his kingdom to earth. And so the church is Epcot. We're going to get a giant golf ball out in the parking lot and pass a bucket in a bit for you. Um, We are this colony of heaven. And we don't operate like the colonies of the world. In fact, if you know anything about church history, European colonization of Africa, Asia, Latin America, it wasn't actually good news for those who were colonized. So this is why it's important to know that our goal isn't to change the world, but to be the world changed by God. Because if your goal is changing the world, then it's too easy for the ends to justify the means. So the way we go about announcing the rule and reign of Christ in the world isn't the way of empire. The way of Jesus has always looked radically different than the way of Caesar. We don't go out and try to implement change in the world through violence or coercion or force or power, but we go in the way of love. The way of the cross self-sacrifice, humility, and co-suffering love. One writer puts it this way, Jesus doesn't call his followers to change the world directly, for that would tempt us to covet Caesar's sword of coercive power. Rather, we're called to change the world indirectly by being the world already changed by Christ and attracting others to join us. So what does this practically look like for us to move towards this vision of being the world changed by Christ, for us to live as an experimental prototype community of tomorrow, for us to function together as the family of God in a way that's radically different than the world around us? Well, Paul sums all of it up in this phrase in verse 2, walk in the way of love. This is the defining mark of Christ's church, that we are a community of embodied love. And it's not just love in general and that we're nice and that we're pleasant and that we're kind, but it's a real gritty love that has to do with real relationships that have been torn and separated by sin. And so our vision at Antioch, the vision that God gave us, this uh, invitation of joining him in the reconciliation of all things, we've attempted to flesh that out in a way that puts, uh, puts something real to it, real and tangible when it comes to embodying this mission and vision. And so around our uh, sanctuary here, you'll see various icons that represent the six practices, six biblical practices of communion, formation, community, hospitality, justice, and Sabbath. Each one of those represents 
our commitment to walk in the way of love in the relationships that matter most. And so we grow in our knowledge and love for God through the practice of communion, abiding in Christ together. We grow in our knowledge and love for ourselves through the practice of formation and becoming who we are. We grow in our knowledge and love for one another within the church through the practice of community, learning to share life as family. We grow in our knowledge and love of our city through the practice of hospitality, welcoming the other. We grow in our knowledge and love for the world through pursuing justice and remembering the poor. And we grow in our knowledge and love for all of creation through the practice of Sabbath and celebrating what is good. And so as we kind of turn the page in Antioch's story and begin this new season, this new chapter together, it's an invitation to you not to audit church, but to dive in. And we don't have a one-size-fits-all form of discipleship or spiritual formation. We have an invitation from a person who is actively discipling us, wanting to use the classroom that is the church and is our lives as the place where he will form his character in us. And so we need each other. We belong to each other. And for whatever reason, God has chosen to use us, his church, to display the beauty of his coming kingdom to the world. The passage ends by saying that as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, it was a fragrant offering to God, or maybe your, your translation says a pleasing aroma to God. For Jesus, amongst all that he was doing, his end motivation was that his life and his death would be offered up as a sacrifice that was pleasing to God. I don't know if you have a certain aroma that's your favorite. It's a special occasion today. I put a squirt of cologne on. Um, I've been using the same cologne for as long as Jen and I have been married, and you think I mean the same brand. I've been using the same bottle for 16 years. <laughs> so I'm not one of those guys. Some of you are, and I appreciate that. But God has given us a beautiful invitation on how to orient our lives by his grace through faith in a way that would not only be good news to the world, but to him would be a pleasing and fragrant offering of love. And so above all else, the most important thing to Jesus is that we're learning how to love God and from there, love our neighbors as ourselves. And so my hope, my prayer is that this place, this people, this new season that we enter into, I don't know what's going to happen, but I hope that everything we do here is a pleasing aroma to God, that it honors his name, that he feels loved by his people.
And so I'm excited to invite you on that journey. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the incredible gift that you have entrusted to us of being part of your body in the world. And it's overwhelming at times. It's incredibly difficult at times. But we're thankful that you haven't left us at it on our own. That not only have you given us one another, but you have given us your Holy Spirit. Your Spirit now lives in us. So it's actually possible for us to become imitators of God. And so we pray as we enter into this new season of life as a church, that this would be, that our life together would be pleasing to you. And that we could display for the watching world the good news about who you are and what you're doing. In Jesus' name, amen.